It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Skano Sego Ani Bojo Kwekwe Tansi, and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And of course, if you've downloaded the Radio Player Canada app, you can listen anywhere across the country just by typing in ELMNTFM and then uh, choose either Ottawa or Toronto. Click on the station, follow the directions, and you could be listening, as I say, anywhere across the country. I'd like to welcome my first guest to the show, Monique Gray-Smith. She's an author. And she's on the phone joining us from beautiful British Columbia and the city of Victoria. You know, Monique, uh, I couldn't help when I was reading the information about what, what's happening with you and with the fact that, you you know, you're an author, you've done a whole lot of things. And I'm going to tell people a little bit about, about yourself uh, right now. You're an award-winning author and an international speaker and a consultant. Now, consultant, what kind of a consultant uh, consultancy do you do? We do a lot of work primarily with school districts and government to really help them weave in or make the roots of the work that they're doing, depending what their work is. Indigenous curriculum, ways of being, knowing, thinking, and living in this world. Uh, so Monique, the books I write are a big part of that, for sure. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Monique, uh, as we said, you're of mixed heritage of Cree, uh, and also Scottish, I believe, uh, heritage. Yes, and also on my dad's side, there's Lakota ancestry as well. Yeah, and 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 so your books, uh, you've you started back in around I think uh, 2010 or so when you had your uh, first my book. My first book came out in 2013. Okay, it was called Tilly: A Story of Hope and Resilience. Yeah, so can you tell us about that? Why did you Why did you want to get into write a story such as that? Oh, I actually never ever saw myself as a writer. <laughs> Mm. But I kept getting messages um, from the ancestors to write and, and share some of my story. But a large part of what I used to do in my consulting was educate people around Canada's history and not the history that we grew up knowing in school or mm. around our dinner tables, but the real history of Canada. Sure. And so uh, I one day had had two, two sessions in one day where somebody had said to me, have you ever thought about writing a book? And so I came home and, and I started and... In the end, that's how Tilly, A Story of Hope and Resilience, came about. And it was like a door opening for me around other ways to educate hearts and minds of not only people living in this country we call Canada, but, you know, I've been really blessed that those books have now traveled in various places around the world. And so I I share that because often in life we get messages from the ancestors. And when we don't listen, then we get, you know, a stronger message and a stronger message. And I mean, I'm keeping my story very short, but it was a life-threatening illness that really in the end caused me to pause and begin to write. Fascinating. And, you know, it's interesting you mentioned about these messages and uh, messages from the elders or from uh, uh, the spiritual side of things. Uh, you're the second caller we've had in as many days to, to say the exact same thing. So that's very interesting. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I think writing and storytelling in all forms of arts are, are, are really one way for our spirituality, our connectedness, those who have gone to the other side and those who haven't yet come to really work with us to share messages that people need to hear. And since your your first book in 2013-14, Attili, A Story of Hope and Resilience, you've now had five books out, I believe. Yes. <clears throat> Excuse me. And a new book that came out just last year called Tilly and the Crazy Eights. Yes, that's right. 
Um, can you take us through a little bit of the of the progression of these stories and and what you talk about in these stories? Sure. Like, is in regards to the Tillies or the books that have come out? Uh, let's take us through a uh, uh, like just a chronology of of the things you've put out. Okay, sure. Thank you. Um, after Tilly, a story of hope and resilience came. My heart fills with happiness, and that was in 2016. And that was inspired. I was doing some training at an Aboriginal Head Start in Mission BC here called Future Four Nations. And and many of your listeners will know where Aboriginal Head Start are cultural preschools across this country. And at the break, I saw this little guy come. The children joined us, and this little guy came running in, and he was looking for his person. And then he found his cookum, and he ran right up to her, which is grandma and Cree in my language. He ran right up to her and stopped in front of her, and she took his face in her hands, and she looked at him with so much love that his whole body changed. And what I saw was his heart filled with happiness. And so I thought about that on the ferry ride home, and I thought about it for a couple of weeks. And then one day I was in a meeting, and a whole book came, and not a single word's been changed. And this year, uh, thank you to Canadian Children's Book Centre and TD Canada and Canadian uh, National Institute for the Blind, all of the grade ones across this country are getting that book in either English and Cree or French and Cree. And I have to say, you know, that that, that book really, yes, the, the words are powerful, but the book is beautiful because of the illustrations by Julie Flett. Mm who some of your listeners will know, she's Cree and Métis, and she really is the matriarch of illustrators in our country, especially Indigenous illustrators. She has a new book out called Bird Songs, which was just a finalist for the Governor General's Award, and and she's just remarkable. So when, they, when Orca Book Publishers told me she was going to be the illustrator, I was over the moon. And when people see that book, they see her incredible illustrations and how she brings to life those words. Um, so we're grateful that that book, like when you think about, David, that 560,000 children in this country are going home with a book with a little girl who's First Nations on the cover and in one of our languages, like that, that's pretty profound when we think about that, that there will be households will be like, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm I'm so happy as you were as you were explaining that story. I'm 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 just here with a big grin on my face. I'm I'm glad you explained that. I I, w- I was going to get to that. I didn't think we were going to get to it so quickly. As well as <laughs> as well as uh, as well as the story about it being you know uh, sent across and sent home with kids uh, right across the country. And you also mentioned that they get it in either e- English, French, or, or Cree. And it's, it's beautiful. Uh, I was going to ask well, you about that. Actually. Yeah. So they get it in English and Cree. Mm-hmm. So if they're in a school right. district where it's English, it's English and Cree in right. the book. Yep. And if they're in a French district, it's French and Cree. And there have been a number of copies made in print Braille. Mm. So students who need support in that way also get the book, which is also the first time this has happened. Yeah. So when we launched it and I saw, oh, see, I'm going to cry now. <laughs> when we launched that and I saw Cree in print Braille, it was very powerful. It, it, it's, it's a wonderful story. Congratulations to you. Now, can you tell us a little bit about... Well, and to Julie Fett. Yes, of course. Right? Of like course. The piece I, is that that she deserves as much credit without question now, can, for the celebration. Of course, I don't want to leave her out of it. But can we also ask about uh, who did the translation? 
the, the Cree translation? A woman named, an elder named Mary Cardinal Collins. Mm-hmm. And, and then they've been tinkered with a little bit out of the Cree... Oh my gosh, I'm missing the proper name, David. No worries. Uh, there's an association in Saskatchewan that is ensuring that languages that come out, especially Cree, the, the dialect, the Plains Cree dialect, is, is um, absolutely correct. Mm. That's wonderful. So just to reiterate, what we're talking about is my, uh, your book entitled My Heart Fills with Happiness, and that is going to be distributed uh, throughout Canada. And that is part of the 2019 TD Bank Grade 1 Book Giveaway. And now, how did you get selected? What was the process? Can you take us through how this happened? Yeah. Well, I think, which is interesting, right? Because it came out in 2016, so it's not mm-hmm. even really a new book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly. We ju- The offer came to Julie and I, and originally, actually, we said no, because the royalty is so, so awful. You know, people think, oh, 560,000 books, you're rich. And no, that is not the reality, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so we said no. And then when they came back to us and said, what if we did it in the English and Cree or French and Cree version, then we said yes. Mm. Because the power of all of those little people and their families getting a book in our language is immeasurable. Yeah, it sure is, and, and what a what a wonderful thing for them to take home. And as you say, mm-hmm. with uh, Julie Flett and the illustrations, I've seen a couple of them, and they are very, very striking. And it mm-hmm. is... Now, the other thing that that book does, of course, is is, is that you focus on moments. You, you focus on these really lovely moments between people and, and situations, and, and you, you take those, you, you, you ask people to think about moments. Yeah, so I say, like, my heart fills with happiness when I see the face of someone I love, when I walk barefoot in the grass, when I feel the sun dancing on my cheeks, when I drum, or pardon me, when I sing, when I dance, when I hold the hand of someone I love. So there are these moments in time that I, I hope children will pause and reflect on what fills their heart with happiness. And that really is the last question in the book, what fills your heart with happiness? And I wanted that to be the last question for a couple reasons. One, especially when you think about reading books before bed, mm. I wanted little people to be thinking about what, what fills them with happiness before falling asleep so they have a gentle sleep. And I wanted them to turn to whoever was reading to them and ask them what fills their heart with happiness because there's the power of intergenerational healing. Mm-hmm. Right, like when you think about our history, that many of our families, including mine, are are removing the clouds of trauma over generations. Mm. And so, when a little person asks us what fills our heart with happiness, it causes us to pause. Mm-hmm. You think about that, and happiness is a powerful medicine for us. Mm. It increases our dopamine and decreases our cortisol, which means that really it decreases our stress. And in this society that we live in, we need a lot of decreasing of stress. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's part of why, you know, the book is still resonating with a lot of people is because happiness is something that people are craving and it isn't in our devices, it isn't in social media, it's in those moments that are precious that when we pay attention, they alter our day. Mm. Yeah, very true, uh, very true, especially in today's world where so much is focused on, uh, uh, you know, either a device in your hand or, or a screen in your face. 
uh, as we see uh, everywhere, walking down the street, we see it uh, whether you're on a bus or wherever you are. So many people are not uh, seeing the world around them anymore. I can't. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure uh, you mentioned you have you have twins, and I'm sure that that you know what it's like if you're on a trip, going on a trip in the vehicle somewhere, and they <laughs> they are oblivious to what's going on around them. They're, so they're facing oh, yeah. a screen. And and uh, yeah. you know when I was a kid, I had my face uh, plastered to the window. I was watching everything outside, seeing all the world around me. Yep. Totally, right? Yeah. Listen, I'd like to ask you something. You mentioned uh, Head Start, the Head Start program. And um, I'm wondering if you happen to know my sister because she she works uh, uh, in Head Start and has for many years uh, in the BC area and headed up a program called Friday's Child. Terry Loudon, are you familiar with her? Oh, yes. She was in Campbell River, right? Yeah, up up around, uh, yep, Comox, Campbell River. Yeah, that's right. For sure I do, yes. Small world. Beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> she's really made a huge, powerful ripple effect. Yes, she did. It's, uh, yes, for sure. Great. So, so listen, you know, when I, when I see, and what you mentioned this as well earlier, 550,000 copies of a book, if that were on, uh, on you know, the, a bookseller's list, that would be no small feat, I imagine. <laughs> no, that would be no small feat for sure. <laughs> So that must that must make you feel good though to to know that these kids are all going home with a copy like that across the country. Well, when we launched it in Vancouver, um there was Britannia Elementary School brought two of their classes. And so I would sign the books. Julie unfortunately wasn't able to join us that day, so I would, you know, write the children's names in and sign it. And then they'd walk away holding it to their chest, David, like <laughs> like it was precious. And those moments are worth way more than any paycheck, for sure. Mm. But they're also, for some children, maybe the first time they have their own book, either for economical reasons or that they're the fifth or sixth child in a home and there's already lots of books, but not one that is their book. Mm -hmm. So that's the beauty of this, is that every child gets their own copy, which is, you know, a beautiful gift. Yeah. Now, I, I guess the other thing is, of course, we. Do, I don't, do you know much more about the uh, the TD Grade One book giveaway? How that works? Do, you know, since this has happened, do you know more, anything about that? I guess it happens once a year. I'm not sure. It happens once a year. So the books are currently being delivered to districts and schools across the country. Um, that's almost all I know. The Canadian Children's Book Centre could tell you more for sure. Yeah. Um, now, listen. You also mentioned that that. You think the book? You state the book it contributes to an ongoing global dialogue. Can you elaborate on that? Well, I think happiness is, is something that I would love us to be talking more about, and and how do we generate that within ourselves and within the people we love, so that we decrease the cortisol, the stress that is so prevalent in our society now, and increase that dopamine, you know, which is that feel-good drug that. Many young people, that's why they love their devices. All those little pings, you know, when there's mm. a notification, releases that dopamine. But we have to have other ways other than a device for us to have that dopamine released. And, you know, people ask me, so that's great for children, but what about adults? And and we spoke, you and I, really briefly at the very beginning about the last book I had come out called Tilly and the Crazy Eights. Mm-hmm. And I often describe it as the adult version of My Heart Fills with Happiness because it's the story of this character, Tilly, and eight elders who do a road trip from Vancouver to Albuquerque, New Mexico, for the Gathering of Nations powwow. 
And it was inspired by one of the elders who's recovering from cancer, coming to their Stitch and Bitch, their weekly sewing group <laughs> that they've been running for 40 years in the basement of the community hall, and just saying how much she realizes she's done without, how little she's done with her life. Mm. And so it starts this conversation, and one of the things she wants to do is dance at the Gathering of Nations powwow. Mm. And that's how this trip is inspired. So these six women go, and then a husband comes along, and an ex-husband comes along, and Tilly's the driver. <laughs> but it really is a book that, you know, there's lots of laughter. They have a stop in Las Vegas. There's lots of laughter woven in. But it also tells aspects of our history, and it shows the incredible resilience of our elders and how history still impacts them. But the choices they're making... To live a life where history doesn't control them, but they control their life. Right. And the happiness really is woven throughout. Mm. I just want to let everyone know that you're listening to uh, Element FM, and this is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest on the line you're hearing uh, speak is Monique Gray-Smith. She's an award-winning author, international speaker, and consultant. It's a pleasure to have her on. She's been talking about her uh, her, her books, uh, Tilly and the Crazy Eights is the one you just heard her, her talking about. And uh, just want to go back to the first book that came out, Tilly, uh, the story of hope and resilience that actually won the Burt Award for First Nation, Métis, and Inuit liter- literature in 2014. Mm-hmm. Yes, how blessed am I with that? <laughs> and Tilly and the Crazy Eights just won the First Nations Community Reads Award. So I'm actually coming to Toronto in a couple of weeks with Dr. Cindy Blackstock. Her beautiful children's book, Spirit Bear, won the Children's Award for that this year. So the celebration's happening November 12th for for those awards. Wow, that's great. Congratulations to you. And, you know, wow, to be there with uh, Cindy Blackstock, what a, what, right. a, what a force she is. <laughs> yeah, I think she's one of the greatest humanitarians, not only in our country, but in the world at this mm. time. I think you're right. Yeah. I, I, I can't argue with that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So listen, tell me about Tilly. Who is Tilly? Well, in Tilly, A Story of Hope and Resilience, she, she was loosely based on my life. That was creative nonfiction, that book. But then once we get to Tilly and the Crazy Eight, she really does take on her own persona. Mm. So it's not that the book is is in any way reflected within my own living at that time. Mm. She's a mixed heritage woman. Uh, when we first meet her in Tilly, A Story of Hope and Resilience, she's 11. And then when we meet her, and so it takes us through her life until she's in her early 40s. And then in Tilly and the Crazy Eights, we meet her as she's about 47 or 48. And she's married, and she just says they're in this place of chronic intimacy where really the relationship is about the transactions that happen, like who's going to get the winter tires put on, who's getting the oranges for soccer practice, like all those pieces in a relationship. And that the roots of of what brought them together are are kind of drying up. Mm. And so this trip is a place for her to to go and really reflect and figure out what's my next step. Mm. Okay. Um, now, listen. Uh, if people want to find out more, I, w- I want to uh, direct people to your website because um, you you can actually, when people go there and and check you out, they can actually hear some some sections that are in audio there. Yeah, I've read a few pieces. There's also links to some of the talks that I've given. There's a few things on there as well. Yeah, and and your uh, your website is. MoniqueGraySmith.com, and Gray is G-R-A-Y. Right. Now, 
Um, as we, we talked about earlier, and this wonderful book that is being distributed uh, to, to grade ones across the country, and uh, my heart fills with uh, joy and happiness. happiness, pardon me, and, um, and, and the illustrations that are in there, you can actually, when you, you're online, you can see some of those as well. Mm-hmm. And they really are yeah, lovely. Oh, yes, Julie Fred. My second children's book that came out is illustrated by Danielle Daniels, and it's a beautiful, beautiful book as well called You Hold Me Up, dedicated to Aboriginal Head Start staff. Mm. And then um, in this coming fall, there's another children's book coming out called When We Are Kind. And it's illustrated by a, a mixed-heritage woman who's Navajo and German. Her name is Nicole Neardhart. Mm. And her illustrations, are, it's the first time she's done a book, and her illustrations are gorgeous, <laughs> absolutely gorgeous. She grew up in Santa Fe, so the colors she weaves in are oh. colors that we don't usually see. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a lovely place. I have not yet been there. Uh, I've been to Albuquerque. I know your your group uh, in one of your stories is on their way to Albuquerque, and uh, and and I've been down to to you know Arizona area. Uh, but you know what's interesting when when you say Santa Fe, uh, someone told me a long time ago, don't go to Santa Fe. Hmm. Do you know why they told me that? They said you won't want to come back. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I said to a friend yesterday, she's going, I said, I'm glad you're flying, because if you drove, you'd want to pack your whole car with all kinds of things to bring home. <laughs> yeah. The art is magnificent there. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, Monique, do you mind if we if we touch on, because you, as you say, you, you, you are a speaker, you, you, you travel the world and do things. And, and you mentioned that, that Tilly was based on, uh, in the first book, was based partly on your life. And, um, you know, you talk about being, being sober in, in, in some of the, the, the word, words that are on your website um, and, and over for 28 years. So it sounds like there's a story there as well. Mm-hmm. I started to drink when I was 11 because oh. of there was so much happening in my house, right? You, mm. well, you know, we know the stories. My mom was not part of the 60s scoop. She was part of the 40s scoop. Mm. And so my family's been on a journey of, you know, redemption and reclamation all those years. She'll be 79 in December. Mm. And so in my family, there was a lot of things happening, um, things that should never happen in children's lives, but Mm. do happen, unfortunately, still too frequently. And so that's what I turned to. And I drank very heavily for 11 years until I sobered up when I was 22 and after about a year and a half of being sober, um, AA was helpful for sure, but I needed something different. And so I went to a treatment center in Vernon called Round Lake, and their motto is culture is treatment. And that's what I needed. Mm. I needed was a different way to connect, to heal. And that was it for me. I had the incredible privilege that the elder I worked with there, his name's Dr. Lee Brown, um, and so I, you know, I really, I often talk about Round Lake in my writing because my time there was instrumental to who I am today, to my recovery, to my family's reclamation, to so much for sure. And that I, I honestly don't know, David, if I would still be sober had I not gone there. And I know if I wasn't sober, I wouldn't be alive. Mm. 
So it's a very, it was a very powerful healing place for me. And a, a place that, you know, in my mind, I still return to the beautiful valley and the lake there and, and just the topography is, is magnificent. So when I'm in those places where, you know, we all have them when we're not feeling very good and our shoulders are slumped and our breath is shallow, that's one of the places in my mind's eye that I go to. And I can feel myself change. That for me, that place is very powerful and has been instrumental in my healing. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for sharing that and and uh, and letting us know about that. I'm sure, as you say, you're not alone in in in, mm-hmm. in that experience for sure. Now, I really like that uh, comment you made about culture is treatment. I think that's right. That's right on. Mm-hmm. For sure. Now, can I ask also then? Do you use your writing as a form of therapy for yourself? Some days, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> well, I think for me anyways, when I write, that that it really encompasses all of me, especially my spiritual self. Like, I don't feel like I can write without spirit being present. Mm. And so there's some days when life is full with other things, and I don't write. Mm. I don't write every day. I wish sure. I did, but I don't. Right. But I really do feel like, you know, the stories choose me and they come through me and that they are gifts for mm. sure that I that I feel very blessed to to be able to write to share stories right yeah um what else is is going on anything else coming up I know you said you're going to be here in a couple of weeks in Toronto uh to to along with uh, uh Cindy Blackstock uh for for a reception you're receiving an award It's called the First Nations Community Reads Award. Mm -hmm. So she's receiving the children's honor. I'm receiving the uh, adult youth adult honor for our books. And and then from there, I leave to Charlottetown for they have a provincial conference, and I'm doing a keynote address there. And then I'm back actually in Toronto in the beginning of December, near the beginning of December. To do a talk for we, not not necessarily we day, mm. but we for the teachers across around the world. So it's one of those talks mm. where you give and then it's live streamed. Right, it's sort of like a TED talk kind of thing. Yes. Well, that's great. Congratulations, and um, Thank you. you know, I think that if that if uh, if if people want to, of course, as we mentioned, find out more um, and and uh, find out more about you, to find out more about your books, they can go to your website, which is moniquegraysmith.com, and that is gray, R-G-R-A-Y, and uh, they can find out more about uh, uh, you, find out more about your books, find out uh, uh, if they want to contact you, reach out to you, perhaps get you to come and, and do some kind of a keynote speak or, or make a presentation mm-hmm. of some kind. Uh, they can do that. In the meantime, I guess your your home is located on Vancouver Island. Yeah, I live on the traditional territories, uh, combined territories of the Lekwungen speaking and Noah Saanich people, also known as Victoria, B.C. Beautiful Victoria, B.C. No kidding. It certainly is. I spent some time there. I worked uh, you know, worked in Victoria for a little while. And uh, Monique, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I really want to thank you for taking the time, especially, uh, you know, three hours difference between us. And, and we appreciate you taking the time to do this with us. 
Uh, but we wish you all the best and congratulations and all your success. And uh, hopefully we can get you on the show in person sometime in the near future. Yeah, I would love that. And thank you very much for thinking of me and, and hosting me. I, I am immensely grateful. Our pleasure. That is Monique Gray-Smith. She is an author, an award-winning author, international speaker and consultant. She was on the phone with us from Victoria, British Columbia, speaking to us, among other things, about her book, My Heart Fills with Happiness, which is being sent home with 550,000 children across Canada as they, in, in English, Orkree and or English and French, uh, right across the country as part of the TD Grade 1 book giveaway. So congratulations to her. It's been a pleasure having her on the show. But don't go away, folks. We'll be right back on Moment of Truth and Element FM right after this. Hey, welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and you could also be listening on the Radio Player Canada app anywhere across the country if you download the app and type in ELMNTFM and go to the uh, Toronto or Ottawa uh, station, click on the station, and then just follow the directions, and you'll be able to listen, as I say, anywhere across the country. I'd like to welcome my next guest to the show, Dr. Greg Evans. Now, Dr. Evans is here to speak with us about a... Well, and I'd say it's uh, it's something I think we're all familiar with. I think it's something that in many ways we uh, have all experienced if we're walking down the street at all in a busy area. But, uh, Mr. Evans, it's a pleasure to have you on the program today, and thanks for joining us. Well, it's wonderful to have an opportunity to share some of the research uh, that we've done and, and some of the findings. Now, you know, with that, I, I have to say, and I, I had to pause there because I, I, I wish I could say it was a pleasure to be discussing some of this information. But in fact, the, the topic that we're going to be talking about, pollution, and in particular, the, the, uh, the pollution at ground zero, I guess, uh, at everyone's uh, breathing uh, level on streets in busy and, uh, and uh, heavy polluted areas or heavy populated areas is, is the reason we're talking about the study that, that you, you're heading up and you have found some, some rather disturbing, I guess, information. But I, and, and as I mentioned earlier, I think that most people, if they're walking down the street, if it's rush hour, the, the, the cars are just sitting there, they're idling, they're kicking out their pollutants, and we're breathing them in. Uh, it's, it's something I think everyone might be familiar with if they're doing that. Um, and I guess in some ways, when I, when I read uh, you know, about what you're doing and what you've, you've found, and if I may say, it, it, it isn't surprising in, in, some, in many ways uh, to, to read what you've found. Yeah, well, um, I, I can see um, people might see it as a you know a, a glass half empty, a, a negative thing. I I'm think uh, I see the outcomes as very much about an opportunity for for how we can make it better. Um, certainly, when we went into this study, uh, we already knew that one third of Canadians live beside major roadways, and we were interested to find out really what does that mean. So knowing that people are being exposed to traffic pollution in our city, yes, certainly we do know that. Uh, but really, what are those pollutants and how high are the concentrations and how much do they vary across the city? There's a, there's a lot of nuances to it that uh, this study really allowed us to do very much a, a deep dive into. Now, you head up, uh, you're the director of the Southern Ontario Centre for Atmospheric Aerosol Research at the University of Toronto. 
and I see also you're, you're listed on, on many other things as well, but that's, I guess, the one we're kind of focusing on. But I'm, I'm, I suppose they all, they all, all these things you're involved with sort of uh, overlap in, in some ways. Well, they certainly overlap. I, I have a, a huge interest in urban air quality and um, how people get around cities and transportation in general, and that's brought us to this interest in terms of traffic-related air pollution. Uh, but some of the other involvements are, are engineering education, for example, how we educate uh, the engineers that will build our future cities. So there's really a, there's a breadth of things that do come together, but uh, today I think we'll, we'll focus on the traffic pollution. Yeah, so can you take us to, to uh, how and why this, uh, th- this came about, this study? Um, well, about eight years ago, so this has really been a long, long project. We, we did do this analysis where we looked at you know, what is it that Canadians have been exposed to and how many, and figuring out how many of us are, live near major roadways, well, that, that we could do, but figuring out what it means meant that we had to go out and make measurements. And so what we did is we set up, uh, in collaboration with our partners um, at the federal, provincial, and municipal level, we set up monitoring stations right beside different types of, of major roadways. And uh, to give people an example of what a major roadway is, in, in uh, Toronto we have many of them. There are typically two lanes in every direction, so Young Street would be a major roadway, for example. And what we went in believe in was that uh, the more traffic that is on a roadway, um, the more emissions and hence the higher the exposure is. And what we found out is that's not really necessarily the case. And Mm. that's where the opportunity comes in. But I'll come back to that. Okay. Um, How we did it is um, through the government partners, uh, we created these air monitoring stations and uh, that actually was a two-year process to get all the zone and get those in place. Um, but they allowed us to put in very sophisticated instruments so that we could make, measure a huge number of pollutants continuously, uh, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And some of the instruments were making measurements of the air quality at that location, at that roadway, uh, up to every second. And so what we got was a incredibly rich collection of data on how things change over time and how many pollutants there are. We also set up stations at locations well away from the roadway where there's very little traffic and so then we could do comparisons and that comes out with the idea of how much higher is it in terms of different pollutants near the roadway, which are the pollutants that really jump out. Um, so we have probably one of the largest, most comprehensive data sets in terms of what traffic pollution actually is. And the study differs from studies that other people have done because we were there continuously throughout the summer, the winter, day, night, weekdays, weekends, rather than taking a snapshot for, say, a month or using models to estimate. And that's what led us come up with some of these, what I think, are, are very interesting findings. Yeah, well, you said a couple of things there. When you say over time, for instance, you mean 24 hours? What, what, what does that mean in terms of the, the relativity of what you were doing? Uh, well, over time is important. So certainly on any given weekday, uh, we have rush hour. 
And what we found is that there is a rise for most of the pollutants during the morning rush hour. And then for most of them, it drops off. And there's a much, much smaller rise in the afternoon rush hour. So it really becomes about the morning rush hour. Well, that's interesting. It is interesting because people may not think that. They may think that, uh, you know, if they're going to go out jogging, that uh, the morning might be the better time to do that. And in some places it is, but if you're beside a major roadway, certainly the morning is not the time to do it during rush hour. Um, and, and, and there's reasons for that I could go into, but other ones that really emerged as very, very important was the difference between weekdays and weekends. And for some pollutants, weekends, weekdays, doesn't make much of a difference. Other ones, it made a large, large difference. And that was really interesting because the traffic isn't all that different between weekends and weekdays. Um, traffic well. when you when you say uh, um, uh, but but I found it interesting you said that there was a difference even in the morning and afternoon rush hours that that's what would, what would contribute to that well um, so what happens is that vehicles emit and it's a small portion of the vehicles that emit the most and I'm, I'm going to come back to that as we go along mm-hmm. as they emit though that air pollution gets blown away from the roadway um, so that the concentrations become lower and lower as you get further and further away from that roadway. And in the morning, there's a lot less wind. Mm, okay. So it's really by the afternoon, things have picked up. There is more wind and, and the emissions from the vehicles are getting much more diluted. And so we get this, this peak for, for many pollutants in the morning but much less so, or, or hardly at all, for some pollutants in the afternoon during the afternoon rush hour. Now, it, was your was your uh, testing and, and things that you did was it on just on Toronto, or did it, was this compared with other cities across the country? Well, what we did is we picked the two Canadian cities where there was the highest portion of the population being potentially exposed to traffic pollution, and that's Toronto and Vancouver. So in both of those cities, about half the population lives within 250 meters of a major roadway. Um, And that's the distance that we found that this traffic pollution, as it gets blown away and as it gets diluted down, it takes about 250 meters before the concentrations of those pollutants are similar or about the same as to what they would have been if that traffic was not there. So you have to be about 250 meters away from a roadway. And in a city like Toronto, that's very hard to do in the downtown core because of the way our, our roads are laid out. And it's the same thing in Vancouver. Almost everybody in downtown Toronto lives within 250 meters of a major roadway. It becomes less as you go out um, to the surrounding regions. Yeah, and, and as we know, uh, they've continued to, to build uh, high-rise condos very close to the Gardner very, very close. And, and um, you know, that, that, that is a good thing. I mean, densifying our cities, there's, there's real value in that. And it's not that we can move these houses that are near roadways, and it's not that we're suggesting that that's what should happen. Um, we have to look at what's on the roadways, and that's where um, what we found, I, I feel, is a real opportunity because it's that we can target some easy things to make a big difference. Now, before we get to that, I just want to come back to one other thing you mentioned, and, and I was thinking of this earlier, as I've seen uh, many people jogging down the streets uh, in Toronto. 
Um, and I've often wondered about the joggers or you know people riding their bikes, uh, which is great. Um, but uh, to to what degree are they uh, are they you know exposing themselves to these harmful chemicals more than say just walking, or are they? Uh, it depends when and where. So I agree with you completely that people riding their bikes is wonderful to see uh, how many more cyclists we have in uh, Toronto. And uh, when I like to get around Toronto, um, I often ride a bike as well. Um, so I think that that's great. Um, but it's hard to know because, you know, we'll, we'll get back to this point. Um, it's not all traffic. It's not even most traffic. It's a small portion of the vehicles that are what we call these highly pollutant vehicles. And as you're riding your bike, you just don't know if you are cycling behind one of those those vehicles. So that's the problem. Um, you shouldn't have to know. I mean, the idea is we should target those vehicles and get them off the road, and then people wouldn't have to worry about it. Uh, can I ask you this? Now, something else of, along with, with the, uh, you mentioned densification and the ongoing building and construction that is happening um, there's a lot of, of uh, large vehicles, heavy vehicles, that are involved with these construction sites, and many of them leave their engines running, right, as they're there. Uh, now, maybe they, some of them have to, uh, certain maybe the, 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 the cement trucks that have to keep their things going, but there's a lot of trucks that do, uh, as it seems to me, leave their engines idling and, and running, and um, I think a lot of these are probably diesel uh, vehicles. Uh, that's a great point, and um, certainly uh, there's lots of construction going on in Toronto. It's a good sign for the economy, so it's great that so many things are being built, but it's, it's how it's done, and uh, certainly the, uh, the construction vehicles um, are emitters, and I think there are ways we could improve uh, what we're doing now. So the idea of having those vehicles idle in there, you know, that's something that could be changed. Um, so yes, when uh, when these construction sites go in, uh, typically it goes on for a few years, and the emissions and definitely go up, and the air quality around that area goes down, and you know that's not something that we should have to deal with. Mm-hmm. I just want to let everyone know that they're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. I'm David Moses, your host. My guest is Dr. Greg Evans, and he's here talking to about uh, about a new a study that he is heading up, and it has to do with uh, uh, pollutants in, in our, our cities, and specifically uh, those pollutants that are in and around very close to the proximity of, of people living within about 250 meters of, uh, of, of, this, of the pollutants coming out of these vehicles. And um, so we were just talking about uh, construction sites and some of the vehicles and how we might be able to alleviate some of that concern with maybe uh, uh, dealing with that at some point. Uh, the other thing I found interesting, uh, Dr. Evans, was you, 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 you identify, of course, many of the pollutants that are coming out of the vehicles. And, and I really thought it was interesting because I thought about this at some point a while back. And, and I thought, you know, there's millions of vehicles on the roadways and about every four years, if you rotate your tires, you need to buy a new set of tires, <laughs> whether it's winter tires or summer tires, uh, because they wear out and the and you know the 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 they're gone. And I, I'm going like, what happens to all of that rubber? Uh, where's it going? And how is that affecting our environment? And I I was in, I was pleasantly surprised to see that you looked at that as well as. Uh, the the uh, brake wear down as well coming off of of, uh, of cars and, and trucks. 
Yeah, and that's a really nice way um, to describe the problem because, yes, we do need to replace our tires and we replace our brake pads on a regular basis. And so people do need to ask themselves, uh, where did all that material go? And the answer is, it goes into the air. Mm. Uh, it becomes particles in the air and then it settles down on the roadway and becomes what we refer to as road dust. Our roads as well need to get resurfaced on a regular basis. They wear out as well. And so we have these sources that um, we call non-tailpipe sources to really distinguish between things that come from the vehicle engines and go out the exhaust pipe in the vehicle versus the ones that don't come out the exhaust pipe. So what we found is that we had some very, very new sophisticated instruments that could look at concentrations of metals um, every hour. And what we found, there were some metals, uh, copper being one of them, that peaks during the morning rush hour. And that tells us that this is something that's coming from the vehicles. And we can look at what the concentration is related to how many vehicles there are. And we found, sure enough, more vehicles, higher peak. We can then look at the ratio of what the metal composition is. And we found that it corresponded quite closely to brake pads. Mm. So it was really the brake pads and the tires that are causing a lot of the particulate, the particles in the air that are coming from the vehicles. Now, people knew that, um, but what, what has changed is that if we looked over the last 10 years, um, we saw that the amount coming from the brakes and the tires has steadily risen over about the last five years. And that surprised us. That really surprised us because we had no idea that it was increasing and and it's a good news, bad news story. So the good news is that what's coming out of the tailpipe for most of our cars is decreasing. It's getting better. So the vehicles are getting better. Uh, the bad news is what's coming out from the non-tailpipe has gone up steadily and now exceeds that from the tailpipe. And so we, we looked at, you know, what could be causing this? Um, why could it be going up? And we looked at well, maybe it's that uh, the frequency of rainfall has decreased because uh, when it rains, it washes all this dust on the roadway away and the concentrations drop back down. But, but that didn't really explain what was going on. We wondered whether the composition of brake pads has changed, that maybe we're getting brake pads that are not being manufactured as well. Um, but what we really found seems to be the most likely explanation is that over the last four or five years, car sales in Canada have really changed. And so people are not buying small cars. They're choosing instead to buy pickup trucks and SUVs. And these are heavier vehicles. And so when you put on the brakes and you stop in a heavier vehicle, more material comes off your brake pad, more material comes off your tires, and you get higher emissions. And so we looked at that, and we found there was a pretty close correspondence between the increased levels of air pollution for these particular metal pollutants that when we looked at it in Toronto and how the car sales have changed. Yeah, uh, yeah that is interesting. Is it also, does it, is there a contributing factor in that there are more vehicles as well? There would be more vehicles, um, but the rise was much more dramatic than just mm. the number of vehicles on the road. So yes, we do get more and more vehicles on our roads, but to get a dramatic rise over five years, it's not like the number of vehicles total on our roads have, has gone up that much. 
Well, there's a difference between the way a car, I believe, and the way uh, the emissions are, are set for cars as well as uh, trucks being pickup trucks and, and SUVs uh, and, and uh, large uh, trucks, uh, if I'm not mistaken, com- commercial vehicles, yes? Um, so uh, where I think, I think you're going, but I may not be um, seeing the question correctly, certainly there's a big difference between cars, which are mostly uh, gasoline, operated versus large trucks which burn diesel fuel okay. and the engine is different and that changes the emissions okay. so one of the uh, one of the areas we were interested in is how much of the pollution is coming from cars and how much of it is coming from diesel vehicles particularly large diesel vehicles because the pollutants that come out are quite different okay um, one of the main pollutants for diesel vehicles is called black carbon uh, but people would typically call it soot Mm-hmm. So when you see a large truck start up, you see this blackish particles coming out the stack. That is black carbon or soot. And it's an uh, important concern for climate because it has much more impact on climate than even CO2 does. So mm-hmm. for the given amount of black carbon, um, it's a much higher impact on, on climate. And so it's a climate-enforcing agent, and that's, that's actually a good thing. Um, not to admit it, but it's, 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 it's good that, um, that we recognize that this is a big contributor because these, these particles that come out of things like diesel trucks, they're only in the air for weeks or a month, whereas the carbon dioxide that comes out of when we burn fossil fuels, it's in the atmosphere for 40 years. So we burn something, and it's not our kids, but it's our grandkids that are going to have to deal with that CO2. It's there for 40 years. So what that means is that if we stop emitting the black carbon, we can get an immediate return in terms of a benefit for climate. So that's, let's target that black carbon, and that's something we can do quick about addressing this climate issue. Uh, Dr. Evans, do you know the difference I'm, I'm asking, because I'm, I'm not sure what it is, uh, because I've heard the name, is it clean diesel that I've heard the name used? That's right. I think that's one term. So modern diesel vehicles have much lower emissions than they used to. Um, so modern diesel vehicles will have treatment systems to stop this black carbon and these particles coming up. They have uh, diesel particulate filters, basically filters that filter out all those particles. They also have systems that treat the nitrogen oxides, which is the other big pollutant that we think about in terms of diesel exhaust. So modern, cleaner diesel vehicles are, are much, much better. Uh, the challenge is that diesel engines last a long time, which is a good thing. Um, nice that they're so well built, but it becomes a challenge in that we have a portion, a fair portion of the trucks on the road are much older trucks that mm. don't have these emission treatment systems on them. Right. Now, speaking of that, I, I thought it was also interesting that it talked about catalytic converters and that uh, catalytic converters don't necessarily work all that well in colder temperatures. And, of course, here in Canada, we have a considerable amount of cool or cold temperature. That's right. And these are particularly the uh, converters, the, the catalysts that they have in the diesel vehicles. Okay. Um, so one of the things we found is that... Um, as, concentra- as temperatures got below zero degrees, the lower the temperature, the higher the emissions of these nitrogen oxides. 
and that pointed to the idea that um, you know under the cold Canadian winter type temperatures we have, we are getting higher emissions. These emission treatment systems are not designed for the sort of climate that we encounter. And if we're seeing that in a place like Toronto, which has by no means the uh, coldest winters in Canada, I've, I've lived in Manitoba, so I know a bit about what a cold winter is, and <laughs> not what we have in Toronto. Um, and we can imagine how much more poorly those systems are behaving under those very, very cold temperatures. But that's something that we would really need to look into um, in some of these cities with, with much colder temperatures. You know, we're running uh, almost out of time, but I wanted to ask you a couple of, of other questions. One is, I, I remember seeing these things on the road, and I'm not sure if, if this is related to some of the some of the studying that you guys were doing, but these little little pad things that I've, I've seen on the roads, they, they seem to be temporary. I've seen them around places in different places. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, about a foot no, square? I'm not, quite, I'm not quite sure what mm, they okay. might be. I, I didn't know if that was some kind of, uh, you know, something related to what you were doing. However, what I did want to, to ask you about, uh, Dr. Evans, was uh, what's, what's, how can we help resolve this? What, what can we do? Is your study looking at, at some of the things we can help to alleviate these concerns? Yeah, and I think that's that's where the um, where the opportunities are. So I, I do, do want to chat about that. So uh, when we started, we thought it was the amount of traffic on a roadway that really was the main thing. And the busier the roadway, the more the problem. And we compared one roadway in Vancouver uh, with the 401. The road in Vancouver had 10 times less traffic than the 401, but had the same poor air quality. Mm. And so we're going, how can that be? How is it that it's really not linked necessarily to the total number of vehicles? And what we found is it's linked to the number of trucks, not the total vehicles. And trucks make up a, a small percentage. But more importantly, it's the percentage of trucks on that. So that if you have a road that has a high percentage of trucks, that's more likely to be where a hotspot is. And so that's one opportunity there because it means that we're no longer looking at traffic right across the city. We're looking at the areas where uh, there are the higher predominance of trucks, which is a subset of the roads. Uh, The second thing is that we monitored vehicles as they drove past our lab on College Street. And because these instruments could measure every second, we could get the emissions of individual vehicles as they drove by and we measured the emissions of over 100,000 vehicles. And so we could see really a cross-section of all the different types of vehicles and different types of emissions. And what we found is that it's a very small percentage of the vehicles that are causing most of the trouble. And so the situation we have is we have a small percentage of the cars that are not well-maintained, but most of us are doing pretty well maintaining our cars but it's also with the trucks. It's either these older trucks or trucks that have had their emission systems tampered with, mm. where an operator has deliberately disconnected the filter and the system to convert the gases, and those become high emitters again. So that's a second opportunity in that if we can target those particular vehicles and try to make sure that it's actually these cleaner trucks that enter our cities or drive by our schools or drive by our parks and playgrounds and daycares, um, that'll be a huge gain for air quality as well. And if I'm not mistaken, that's the, the, the new direction of the province of Ontario to, to go after the, uh, the, the trucks and the large, uh, large commercial vehicles 
uh, for pollutants if is that um, because they eliminated the the emission test for the for the cars correct that's right and 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 we are happy about that if it's done correctly the the key thing there is that the enforcement is going to have to be done in a large way so it's not good enough to just say trucks need to come in for an annual inspection because it's too easy to tamper with the emission system it needs to be on road enforcement on road monitoring where People are being vigilant to really nail that small percentage, which might be 10%, 15% of the trucks that are the heavy emitters. So it's great that the province is proposing to go that way, and, uh, and we're just hoping that they're going to be willing to invest what's necessary in order to put the, uh, the infrastructure, the equipment in place to be able to actually catch those offenders. Right. Um, it's uh, been a pleasure having you on the show with us today, uh, Dr. Evans, and I want to thank you for taking the time to do so. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, information that we all need to know, and it's uh, stuff that affects us all. We breathe every day, so uh, it's good to know, and, it, and especially in this uh, continuing, growing uh, world of being aware of uh, climate change or climate crisis, depending on how we want to look at that, uh, and we do need to, to make changes, I think, even if... You know, I think that one thing I keep coming back to and for myself is that even if everybody's wrong, uh, we'd be making changes that would improve our lives and improve the world. Uh, so I think that, uh, again, I want to thank you for bringing this information forward and, and sharing it with us today. Well, it's been a pleasure, and I want to thank everyone who listened uh, for their interest. This is, as you say, a very important area, but it's an area where we can actually take some action. Dr. Greg Evans, he is uh, the director of the Southern Ontario Centre for Atmospheric Aerosol Research at the University of Toronto and a professor at, Univ- at the University of Toronto as well. He's been my guest. I want to thank him once again. I want to thank you for listening. You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM. That's our show for today. Uh, I want to say uh, please tune in next time. Until then, nyawa and onigiha.